So we'll see how any of those end up doing, how much egg we end up on our face. But let's mm, go ahead. Nothing I love more than egg. Yum, yum, eggs. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, a movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are in San Diego, California. Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And we just had our 4th of July celebration not too long ago. I spent most of that week at home chilling with family, but... Because I do it so rarely, I figure I would mention that I watched a show. Like uh, like a TV show? Like a concert? Like a fireworks show? What are we talking here? Well, I did see a fireworks show, but I meant specifically a TV show. What? what so a TV show. Uh, like, like little movies that you can watch that are, you know, 20 to 45 minutes long. Correct. I, I binged both seasons of FX's The Bear on Hulu. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, I So I have not watched season two yet. Um, I'm waiting to, I, I'm going to binge it shortly, but the first season is fucking great. Mm-hmm. Season two is just as good, in my opinion. They really expand on the characters, and, you know, season one was pretty intense as yeah. far as just, like, every episode, you know, in case nobody knows, it's about a uh, group of misfit cooks who work at diner in Chicago, and it's all about sort of the back end of this of this diner and how nobody gets along is kind of a prodigal son what, story. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, Guy inherits his brother's diner, mm. and it's it's like you know, kind of low, not low grade, uh, but just like easy comfort food. And he want he studied as a chef and and wants to elevate it. And so the first season, a lot of the tension comes from him. Like, trying to change things, but it's also, you know, just like, I I know most people I know who have worked in food service can't after the first or second episode. They tap out because they're like, it's just too fucking real. Too triggering. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I don't think I could do it. I would just cry every day. It's Um, pretty brutal. Yeah. There's there's one episode in particular in the first season that triggered me pretty hard and i didn't i've never worked in a restaurant but i've worked you know enough shitty customer service jobs that you can fucking relate right there's a similar episode in season two takes place over a christmas dinner it's a little bit it's a little bit longer um and oh my god it's filled with cameos (laughs) okay I enjoyed it a lot because, it, to me, it felt a lot like a John Cassavetes kind of film. All right. Um, like maybe little Altman, Cassavetes, people talking over each other kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, 
But yeah, I originally heard about the show because, well, everyone was saying you should watch it. And mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was, initially, I thought it was a reality show. I thought it was like a chopped slash. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Like British a food bake off show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, why is this show so great? Like, there's a thousand of these things. No, it's it's a it's a half hour long narrative dramedy. show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I I found out about uh, uh, Maddie Matheson as a character in the show. He's also a producer on it. And who's, who's he? Uh, he plays Fack, the the one guy on the, the show who's not a cook. Who's He's like the big tattooed guy who comes and uh, fixes like handyman. Yeah, yeah, he's like he's at least in the first season he's he's like always there because he's like kind of the maintenance guy. But yeah, he's not in the kitchen, but he is. Yeah, okay, in I know who you're talking. About. IRL in real life, he is an actual chef, oh, and shit. <laughs> a, okay. a lot of he a lot of the. Uh, inner workings of the kitchen stuff, like he's uh, there to make sure that they're getting accurate and that it's legit. Yeah, that yeah, and the, and a lot of like the stress and stuff because he, you know, he kind of went through two or three restaurants in Toronto at the height of his like drug problems and stuff like that. Sure, uh, where he was a young chef and he was kind of getting his feet wet. Um, but yeah. So it's kind of a joke on the show that he's the actual chef who's not a chef. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, he has a lot of fun. YouTube videos and stuff like that. And um, he's also like somewhat adjacent to like the punk and hardcore scene because he toured with bands and he always wears like band t-shirts on the show and that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's uh, why I started watching it. And I highly recommend it. It's a good show. It's a really good show. It's solid. Did you see the uh this is slightly tangential. Um did you see the Emmy noms for best supporting actor? No, I I don't really pay attention to the Emmys really, but I I don't really either, but this was especially egregious because um it's you know, it's like what, six or seven nominations and they are literally all either from White Lotus or succession and it is so fucking stupid like especially with a show like the bear where there is a huge supporting cast and they're all fucking great uh yeah the emmys are dumb but the bear's great check it out yes and also speaking of the emmys i did see that the weird owl movie was nominated for a bunch of stuff yeah even though that feels like a last year thing i guess it like where it was in the calendar year, it it counts as the nominations for this year. That's I, I feel like that's how the Emmys always are. Like I read the nominations, I'm like, wasn't that like three years ago? But it, it, I think it's because TV seasons are weird, and the Emmys are at kind of a weird time because they're in the summer between seasons, and so I guess we'll find out how that all shakes out, but. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the new Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones on the Dial of Destiny, and for our streaming homework, we are going to discuss the movie uh, Born on the Fourth of July, 
which we watched over July 4th weekend, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll just get started here with uh, Indy 5. And uh, did you want to go over the plot? Sure. So Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, we rejoin pulp serial hero Indiana Jones, who is now much more aged. Uh, I believe we're in the late 60s. Uh, it's the the day of the moon landing. Um, he, he's aged in real time from the last time we've seen him. Yeah. Crystal yeah. Skull. So. Uh, so he is... Retiring from academia, he has put all of his adventures sort of behind him. Uh, he was left by Marianne, Marion. So we find him all alone, uh, you know, just sort of a grumpy old man, way past his prime. And his goddaughter, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, comes back into his life and introduces, brings up this old artifact that he had come across back during World War II with his encounters with the Nazis, this dial of destiny. And uh, Indy and Helena's father had managed to retrieve half of it from uh, Nazi Germany. And so she comes in search of it. Unbeknownst to both of them, they are being followed by actual, still active Nazis who are trying to get a hold of this artifact. Indy feels that, you know, it, it's it's part of his sort of collegiate life. It's on file somewhere. Um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is sort of this duplicitous con woman um, who just wants to sell it to the highest bidder. And they're being pursued by Mads Mikkelsen and Boyd, Boyd Holbrook. The uh, guy yeah. from and then, you know, uh, Sandman. Yeah, the Corinthian also uh, uh, plays a similar kind of villainous thug in uh, Logan, which was also directed by James Mangold. Uh, yeah, this is the first indie movie that was not directed by Steven Spielberg, is directed by James Mangold. Um, and all of these varying storylines uh, coalesce to this race for the other half of this Dial of Destiny. You know, uh, fate of the world and all that. We can't let the Nazis get it. Right. So, I mean, it's pretty standard Indiana Jones fare. I think that's kind of what they were trying to establish with this movie. It's been a decade or more since um, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out, which was a movie that um, was not loved upon release and has probably only soured more in the public consciousness. Before, Before we get too deep into Dial of Destiny... Uh, how did you feel about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? I, I feel like I remember a lot of people were pretty cold on it at the time and they blamed the aliens and I don't know, did that aspect of it never bothered me? Like Indiana Jones is this pulp hero who's like, you know, fought voodoo priests and, you know, literal voice of God has melted Nazis before. So I, I don't know. To me, it felt 
in line with sort of the pulp action hero thing that they were referencing. It's been a while since I've seen it, so it's hard for me to really say. I will say, like, at the time, I was mostly ambivalent. Like, it didn't really move the dial one way or the other for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of felt like it was sort of a non-event. And then as time's gone by, it's, I regard it less and less. I'm like, there's the trilogy and then that other one. Yeah, it's it's just like barely a blip, I feel like. Uh, we, we So we actually re-watched it um, like right before we saw Dial of Destiny. Um, so it was, it was very interesting because that movie ends with him finally marrying Marion and having a family again. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were like, how are they going to address this in the, in the new one? And then, you know, the way they address it is, well, we're, we're going to take all of that away from him again. Right. And, and I think that was sort of the point of this movie is, you know, the idea was that people weren't thrilled with the last one because it was a little outside of the box. It was a little campier. It was the effects were brought attention to themselves more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt like, you know, there was a lot of movies like that in the early to mid 2000s where directors were doing their thing, but with a new toolbox. You know, mm. you starting with um, the Star Wars prequels and into stuff like, you know, Land of the Dead. Yeah. Uh, George Romero's movie um, and, and, and into stuff like Indiana Jones at the time where you had all of these people who were just well past that era of their career. Mm-hmm. And it, they didn't quite capture what was there before because they... An interesting period for movies because it's, on one hand, you see these older directors uh, who's maybe a little past their prime, and but they still want to experiment. So they're like, you know, going into digital and trying things with like these new effects and green screen and CGI and stuff. But they're also, like, trying to, like, the cell is is kind of this nostalgia thing that has only gotten worse since then, right? So, like you said, you know, we have Romero revisiting his dead movies and Spielberg revisiting Indiana Jones and Lucas, you know. And it kind of feels less like these are directors with something to say i think that's kind of the problem with these movies is like i think all of these directors probably could have done something more interesting if they had done something different but instead they kind of like found themselves sort of pigeonholed in these you know legacy franchise ips because that's what that's what brought the money in that's what brought the producers and stuff um but for the most part, a lot of those movies were pretty lukewarm because it's like, okay, this is just sort of a worse version of a movie we've already seen. Right. And I feel like the assignment for Mangold here was to 
bring it back to what people enjoy about Indiana Jones in the first place. Yeah. And I think we end up with sort of a double-edged sword because, you know, in one aspect, yes, it does feel more naturalistic and it does feel a little bit grittier and more action-oriented than the last film. But it also kind of just feels like uh, Indiana Jones' greatest hits. Like, there's not a lot of personality to this movie. Um, it just sort of comes and goes. I was fine while I was watching it, but I was never wowed. I was never really that invested in the MacGuffin of the story. I was never really, you know, there's nobody in the movie who's doing more than what I expect them to do at this point in their career. I think uh, Harrison Ford is fine as old grumpy Indiana Jones, but it's not, he doesn't look like he's having a ton of fun here. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge, while she's great, is doing most of the heavy lifting for the action set pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I actually, I feel like the only like character in the movie who was really uh, doing something different was Antonio Banderas in his one scene. <laughs> like uh, he, he's actually kind of coming in doing like a very off-brand kind of character. Yeah, with a with a kind of small cameo, but it, the kind of cameo that isn't drawing attention to itself. It's not like a a wink and a nod, like "Ooh, this is Antonio Banderas," because that doesn't really have much context for the indie franchise. Um, yeah, he just gets this kind of fun little character part, right? And 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 doing uh, doing a pretty good job. And I would say of all of the action set pieces, that was the one that. Uh, what's the most creative, that underwater sequence? Well, that also kind of felt the most new, right? Like, we've never yeah. seen, um, we've never seen Indy in this environment. We've never, like, the franchise has never sort of gone this way. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you there that that set piece was probably one of the more exciting parts of the movie. Yeah, I would, I would say it's a standout. Of the, of the movie, um, that and maybe some of the kookier magic stuff at the end. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I I, I kind it just it, it feels very ephemeral to me. There's nothing about it that there's nothing about it that's as weird or as campy as as Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And I, some people I, I think will appreciate I like that. The, I feel like the ending takes a pretty big swing. Yeah, the, uh, but I, I'm talking about just, like, personality-wise. You know, you don't get scenes like Shia LaBeouf swinging from trees with CGI monkeys or yeah. Indiana yeah. Jones uh, using a refrigerator to escape a, a nuclear test. You mm. know, just goofy stuff like that that was all throughout that movie. And you also don't have the sense of humor of that movie. This movie is a little dry. Uh, it tries to sort of find that father-daughter tension in the same way that Last Crusade does with Connery mm-hmm. and and uh, 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 Harrison Ford's Indy. But 
I don't really feel a familial vibe there. I think the only reason to to make that distinction is just so that we're invested more. But I actually think the more interesting aspect of that relationship is is Harrison Ford's commitment to academia and and her kind of just being more of a grifter and a mm-hmm. and a, uh, a swindler. And I think that would have been enough to distinguish her from him. But uh, yeah, I don't know. And Matt Mickelson, he's, he's he's a fine Nazi, you know. But well, they, so I, here's the thing. I, I think what you're getting at is the people like the the cast is doing exactly what you would expect of them to do. The whole right? movie's like, doing exactly what I would expect it to be. Like if you came to me and said James Mangold is going to direct the next. Indiana Jones movie, it's about the Dial of Destiny, I feel like I could probably predict exactly what this movie was going to be before I'd even seen it. Yeah. Yes. I, and I'm sort of of two minds about that. Like, I I feel like on the one hand, I wasn't, like, shocked by anything or blown away by anything, Um, but the character of Indiana Jones is has always been this, you know, sort of serialized pulp figure. So in that genre, I, you know, I want them to to meet those expectations, if that if that makes sense. Um, which was why I didn't have a problem with the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It's goofy and it's not as um I mean, it, my my biggest problem with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is kind of my biggest problem with this movie is like it sort of it just kind of doesn't do anything new, right? Like it's it is this sort of pulp serialized version of this character. He's just older now. Part of me thinks it's a shame that they never like that they you know decided that this role belongs specifically to Harrison Ford and that they because I I think that you know the Doc Savage type action hero uh, I think there's more we could do with that if if we had gotten away from him as an actor uh, because at this point it feels a little strange that there is this continuity um, that there is this like overarching story with him and Marion and his family. So to me, that's the stuff that is sort of the most, I guess, not off-putting, but is like, well, yeah, he's fucking 80 or 90 or whatever. Um, I, I appreciate that this movie plays his age a little bit more than Crystal Skull does. Like, you know, there's, like you said, um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, sort of does most of the heavy lifting as far as the action sequences go. Like we know that Indy isn't going to be able to have a one-on-one fist fight with the giant thug the way that, you know, he has always had in the past. Um, And so I do appreciate that, that they played that, that they're like, he's an old man now. Like he's still doing stuff that is, uh, you know, inexplicable for someone his age, but they do continually reference his age. They do let him 
as a character age, even if it's outside the realm of reality. I mean, I I don't disagree with you. Everything is feels kind of stock, but I also had a good time with it. It's a fun adventure. It, it, you know, it, I, uh, I actually really liked Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I felt like she, her character and just was more of a fit for an heir apparent than, uh, than Shia LaBeouf's mutt. She just sort of fit the tone of Indiana Jones more. Um, sure. The fact that she was also an explorer, the fact that she had a, a good uh, amount of knowledge of, of, of these artifacts. Yeah, she's she's like, you know, somewhere between Indiana Jones and uh, fucking we're going to steal the Declaration of Independence, right? <laughs> like, she's kind of this middle ground. Uh, uh, she's maybe a little less ethical than Indy. Um, but I, I felt like that was that, like you said, that's a fun dynamic. I I, I think they could have maybe played that a little bit more. Um, yeah, I think that's more what I'm saying. You know, there's no one particular performance or anything that's bringing anything down. Like, it's all up to par. My grievance with the movie is that there's just no surprises. It's it's absolutely yeah. just stock. It's all treading water. And how many times can you just watch... Indiana Jones in another uh, high-speed chase sequence in these tiny European streets. Like, I feel like I've just seen that movie a thousand times. We can do something new with these characters. You know, I would say this would be a time to play it less safe, especially since this is supposed to be the last one. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just felt there was long stretches of the movie that were kind of boring. Like, I wasn't entirely entertained throughout. I was occasionally entertained. But is there anything here that reaches the heights of the original trilogy? I don't think so. Um, I know a lot of people like to shit on Temple of Doom, but I, I feel like that movie at least has more personality than this sure. movie does. I don't know. I I I don't know that I entirely agree with you. I I I mean, yes, it does feel like Indiana Jones' greatest hits, but I'm kind of okay with that. It's not. You're right. It doesn't achieve. You know the the anything that the original trilogy does. Uh, but I found myself enjoying it a lot more than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And maybe it is just that sort of comfort food um, thing. But I was kind of fine with that. I was like, to me, it still felt like, yeah, I'm seeing Indy go on an adventure. And even though I never bought into the stakes, like, I don't know that I ever did. Even when I watched, like... The originals, like, you know, I knew it was a trilogy. I know Indy's going to get out of the car chase. I know he's going to find a way to survive from cutting the bridge in half. Like, that's that's just kind of the genre to me. So I I was kind of forgiving of all of those aspects. Uh, and, then, and then, you know, at the end, it introduces this very pulpy 
thing where I'm like, oh, I guess they're fucking going there. All right. And I was like, yeah, this is fun. And it, it played out to me in a very satisfying manner. I I just had fun with it, but I I get that it's not pushing any any envelopes or 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 anything like that. But I I think sometimes that's kind of okay. I mean, I wouldn't condemn anybody for having a good time at this movie. I think it's it's fine. It's, it's but that's all it is. It's it, it it there's there's no reason for this movie to exist other than the people who made it want money. And I, I, I mean, yes, but that I, I mean, yes, but that's kind of, you know, that's most big budget studio movies. Um, but if you're going to if you're if you're the fifth Indiana Jones movie, 40 years past the first one, uh-huh. you know, I need more than just the formula. You know, I, I want, I'm not saying I want them to reinvent the wheel. I don't, I, you know, I don't want them to change the landscape of cinema, but maybe we learn something more interesting about Mads Mikkelsen than he's just a Nazi with a vendetta. Maybe there's a role for Indy and Phoebe Waller-Bridge and their relationship that's more than just sidekick. Maybe there's, you know, maybe we introduce the magic element of the movie earlier rather than later. You know, there's things you can do to flip the script a little bit or take some risks. And I feel like the movie is just very risk averse. I felt that calculation watching. Also, I know I'm a broken record. It's just too long. It's just too long. This doesn't need to be any longer than two hours. Uh, I mean, yeah, that I agree with. Like, the, there's, there's, especially, there's kind of this bridge between the second and third act that go that goes on, wears out its welcome. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think if anything, Indiana Jones is a perfect case for the 90-minute thing yeah i i mean i i get what you're saying like i do i just to me it didn't bother me like i i don't know like i think the thing that kind of stood out the most to me was you know the sort of de-aging technique at the beginning that i'm like can we please um which i get i get i'm just saying if this had if this had existed when the Last Crusade came out. We wouldn't have got River Phoenix as a young Indiana Jones. We would have got deep fake Indiana Jones face over a boy body. Right. Um, well, you know, I always thought that if you wanted to continue this series, that that was the direction to go. It's once Last Crusade came out, um, you know, go back and of course you would have had to recast it because River Phoenix died, but just do young Indiana Jones. It was already a popular book series. It was already a television series. It was mm-hmm. a known property. Do young Indiana Jones and you could well, keep doing these movies. Well, I, I, I mean, here's the thing from a, from a character art standpoint, right? Like, 
I don't, I know Raiders, this might be sacrilege. I know Raiders is most people's favorite because it's the original. I think as a story, Last Crusade is the best. I think it absolutely has the most complete character arc. And it, that was always my problem with them continuing to do Indiana Jones movies. His story as a character is done. We did it. We we're not going to top that. Um, and I, I feel that that's kind of the case here too. Like, you know, he's just kind of older and sadder, but, um, you know, on a character arc standpoint, they're not doing a whole lot. And, uh, you know, I uh, agree that that would have been nice to have something there. Um, but I also, you know, Temple of Doom doesn't have a fucking character arc for him at all. Uh, you, you know what I mean? So it's like, that's why this is such a it, an interesting franchise. Because uh, I agree. Like, they, I think they should have recast him. I think they should have maybe even kind of gone the James Bond route. Let's just keep putting him in adventures. And, you know, maybe we'll relaunch it with a different director and a different actor. And same kind of vibe, but see what new they can bring to it. And with a character like James Bond, sometimes you get those movies that are just kind of filler movies. You get the third or, you know, Pierce Brosnan movie that isn't the worst, but also is like nobody remembers it. Uh, and then sometimes you get a Casino Royale. I, I feel like that's, if they wanted this to be a franchise, that would have been the route I would have personally preferred. Um, but I also get that there's this, you know, weird ownership of the character. And as a story, I felt like, yeah, this was fine. It was fun. I had a good time. I had a good time at the movies. I I give it a C plus. It's sufficient, but I'll never watch it again. And I don't have any, like, I don't, I can't imagine somebody who's never watched an Indiana Jones movie starting with this one and then going back and getting oh, excited could. about watching the others. I actually disagree. I think that 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 probably makes the most sense. Like, if a younger audience went and saw this, I could see them being like, oh, like, who is this old bastard? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think I disagree with you there. I, I give it a solid B. Uh, I had a good time. I don't have any huge complaints. Um, that was a solid flick. I think if this had come out five years ago, and maybe it's just because I rewatched Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and that movie is kind of a fun mess, but also I think more boring and more formulaic than this one in in a lot of ways uh other than a few elements that one i think really fucking hits all the beats like almost verbatim um so may, i maybe that's coloring my view of dial of destiny is like it's a marked improvement from kingdom of the crystal skull uh but yeah that being said not the worst indie, not the best indie. Yeah. I mean, I I, I kind of look at Crystal Skull like the 
Star Wars prequels, and this is kind of more like the Star Wars sequels. It's not as marred by, you know, a messy... Well, it's not as dated. ...completion. Yeah. Right. But it, it, uh... Well, it it's, it's still kind of the flawed, like, rehash of this, this other thing. Right. Just kind of, um, living on a nostalgia trip. But, uh, it has been a little while since this movie came out. Uh, this was released at the end of June, and it did not do very well, despite okay. well, the budget. Okay, well, so... Considering the budget, that's the thing that's insane to me. This movie cost almost twice as much as Dune. Like, how right. the fuck did this movie cost so much? Like, that that was sort of the appeal of Indiana Jones movies, right? They were not low budget, but they're, you know, these sort of mid-budget action thrillers. And this one, it has, like, this insane... It would be a success if... You know, they had decided to maybe let's have the de-aging sequence be five minutes shorter or let's not create a a moon landing parade for no story reason. Right. Well, I mean, this goes into my intermediary segment that I had planned here. And that's uh, to first bring up this this phenomenon of this year in particular of a great number of failed box office flops or at the very least underperforming movies. Yeah. And uh, then I wanted to talk about some of the stuff that still is yet to come out and we can predict how we feel they're going to do based okay. on how movies have done so far. But just as the list, here's movies that either failed at the box office or underperformed. Dungeons and Dragons. I thought that one. I thought that did well. Hmm. Not really. Sixty-five. The dinosaur yeah, that movie. One, that one was, a, I think, a pretty big flop. Renfield. Okay. Fast X, which made a ton of money, but uh, did not make enough. It is oh, yet to recoup. Hmm. Um, Shazam, Fury of the Gods. Yeah. Transformers, the new one. Beast really? of No Nations, whatever it's called. Yes. <laughs> uh, did not make enough money. The Flash, huge, huge yeah. bomb. Yeah, well, The Flash is like the biggest bomb in WB history, right? I don't know about that, but it, it definitely for... This, I think it's the biggest uh, DCEU bomb. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. And now Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Here's a, a little list of the actual successes. We've had, like, uh, uh, more than recouped. The Super Mario Brothers animated film, which yeah, is still did. the highest growing, grossing movie of the year. Mm-hmm. The Little Mermaid. God damn it. Across the Spider-Verse. Yay! And most recently, Insidious, The Red Door. Okay, well, all the horror movies have done pretty well this year, right? Like, didn't Evil Dead Rise do pretty well, too? And, like, I mean, that's, that's that's why people 
fucking pay money to make horror movies because it's going to be like, you know, literally a a 15th of the budget of something like Indiana Jones. And all you need to do is have that one hook and come out at like the right weekend and you make a billion dollars. Well, I mean, you can. It's not guaranteed. I mean, I I think there's there are a few mishits like uh, the blackening, I think, didn't do as well as predicted. And um, uh, Boogeyman didn't uh, came out, I think, the same weekend as either Little Mermaid or Across the Spider-Verse or something like that. So it didn't do as well as it could have. But yes, it is easier to recoup. If you're spending far less. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, and put that money into the marketing. Uh, that That's why it surprises me that Dungeons and Dragons is considered a flop. Uh, because, man, they fucking marketed the shit out of that movie. And it was good marketing. Like, uh, uh, I don't know. I just remember I was always seeing some, like, cross-promotion uh, the, the experience at Comic-Con was fucking great. Um, I just remember a lot of fun ads that were like a little bit different that didn't give away the whole fucking movie. So the budget of Dungeons and Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves was $150 million, Um, and it is so far grossed worldwide 208 which... Okay, so it's it's not... It's not a flash flop. It's not, you know, they at least kind of made their money back. They just didn't make a huge, they just didn't make a profit. Yeah, I would say they probably have yet to make their money back because you have to, you have to, for a big movie like that, um, you have to assume that the, uh, that the movie makes about three times as much as budget. Okay. Okay. All right. So it's a All little right. under. It's about a hundred million under. So so that one is one of those that we can say it underperformed, but I wouldn't say it flopped. But okay, here's the thing, and you know, this kind of goes into something very topical right now with streamers and uh the writers guild going on strike and uh SAG announcing today that they're going on strike, and today as of the recording of this. With the streaming model, there is such this, there is also less opportunity for movies to make money on the back end, right? Like, I feel like if D&D had come out a decade ago, even if it had underperformed, it definitely could recoup that money with video release, Um, you know, with DVD and Blu-ray and stuff. Doubt it's going to now because, you know, physical media just is not the – you can't really factor that into the economics the way you used to be able to. Um, so I think that's another reason why, you know, like it's very hard to say what is a success and what is a flop because there's no money on the back end anymore. And that used to be, you know, like – that's where a lot of comedies would make their money back. That's where a lot of horror movies would make their money back. Um, I, I feel like, you know, D&D is, as a movie will have that sort of cult audience within the next couple years. Yeah. 
we just have yet to see if the studio has enough faith in rolling the dice on it again to yeah. you know to see if they the cult audience builds um, sure. usually if it doesn't it doesn't um another movie that flopped pretty hard that we didn't bring up Disney's or Pixar's uh, Elemental I thought I just saw a thing today that said it did well. I, man, that's the other thing is like, it's so hard to keep track of that shit. Like, I swear I saw a thing on Twitter today about it making shitload of money, but Twitter's also fucking garbage. So who knows? No, it was a estimated budget, 200 million, and has so far made 259 million. Yeah, that's not. Great. So that's that's very low for Pixar. Yeah. Um, especially compared to something like uh, Mario Brothers or Across the Spider-Verse, which were bigger animated pictures this year. So I have a list of the movies that are still yet to come. Uh, okay. And based upon how this year is turning out, let's, let's try and guess where we think some of these are going to land. Okay. So, we'll catch us up to where we left off. Okay. Released last weekend was Joyride and Insidious the Red Door. Insidious the Red Door has done very well. Um, Joyride, I don't think, is doing as well. I literally hadn't even heard of that movie till like, last the last movie I saw which i saw finally saw a trailer for it so i that does not surprise me that i i doubt it will do much better right it's a comedy you know very pretty low budget um well but i just hadn't heard of it and there's with so many tentpole movies vying for attention it's it's hard to uh to get that butts and seats the time that we release this on Monday will have known the answer, but how do you think Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is going to do? I think it's... Critics I think it's love gonna, it. Yeah, I think it's going to do pretty well. Uh, I think it, it seems like it's critically doing well. I think as a franchise, the Mission Impossible movies usually thread that line pretty well of of you know, budget to box office. I think, I think Tom Cruise trying to kill himself on camera is still a draw. Um, and so I, I think it's going to do well enough, but I, I don't think it's going to like blow any records or, or even be the, the highest grossing in the franchise. I think it's going to do fine. Yeah. And it is kind of a big risk that it's, doing is part one and two. That's so true. they're kind of stuck with it. If it does bad, they still have to release the other because I would imagine they've already yeah. uh, are in the process of making it or finishing it. Um, well, I mean, if it does bad, then, you know, Tom Cruise will just personally market the shit out of it uh, by, you know, buying everyone in the country a ticket. Sure. Uh, it's budgeted at Almost three hundred million at two ninety. Jesus Christ! What the fuck? 
These, a movie should not cost $300 million. That, my dude, they are on average, like for a big summer movie, on average are 200 They That's don't too make much. them unless they're that much. That's too much. How the fuck did Dune only cost like $160 million or some bullshit? Like, to me, that is like the fucking bar. He literally takes us to this fucking desert planet with sandworms, crazy technology, huge stars, and it's literally half the cost of this shit. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, uh, you know, especially with these big franchise movies, you're paying for the actors, you're paying for the green screen, you're paying for the effects. Dude, Timothy Chalamet! He doesn't cost fucking, as much as fucking Cal Drogo. <laughs> like it's 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 got it's got stars. It's got fucking stars. It's got Dave Batista. Yeah, yeah. It's got yeah. Batista. He's a he's hot right now. <laughs> um, we'll see on Dead Reckoning. I think it could go either way. I'm I think it's probably going to uh break even if maybe a little underperform. Sure. Yeah. And I, I I agree. Maybe a little. I think it's going to I think it's going to be fine. I think break even is probably where I'm at. On the 21st, of course, we have Oppenheimer and Barbie. Barbenheimer. Right. I I we talked about this a little before we started recording. I think Barbie is going to be one of the biggest hits of the year. I agree. I think it's going to destroy Oppenheimer. I I think I think Oppenheimer I think it might be kind of a bomb. Um no pun intended. Um <laughs> but I I I think it's I'm not going to say it's going to be a like a full on flop, but I think it will underperform because I think everybody's just going to go see Barbie. I I think that movie is just fucking set up to be like the movie of the year. The marketing has been great. Everybody knows about it. It looks fun. It looks funny. Um, It's a comedy. It look, you know, all ages can go. You can, you know, it looks like something you can go to see with your family um, so it's not like a raunchy comedy, like the Jennifer Lawrence sex one or whatever. Um, and I think it's, you know, we keep hearing about like superhero fatigue and this sort of like big blockbuster action fatigue. I think this is the movie like this is what people are literally asking for. So I think it's, you know, it, it looks it's it's got the female uh, demographic locked in, and I think it looks funny enough that dudes are going to want to see it too. Like it's just it's set up to be huge. I think. I agree. I think it's. Uh, I think it's. Not only is it going to win the weekend, I think it's going to win the summer. Yeah. And I think that it, it it's important that it does that because this might be the last hope for a successful blockbuster comedy. That's true. <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, if this doesn't do well, like, fucking nothing just will. They just won't make comedies anymore. Well, or they'll, they'll, they'll just all be direct to streaming. Exactly. 
Okay, uh, July 28th, the biggest movie coming out is The Haunted Mansion, the second attempt at that. I think it's gonna bomb. Um, yeah. I just think this summer is too... It's already too busy, and why the fuck did they not try to get a Halloween release? Like, what the fuck is wrong with them? At least September, right? Like, releasing that in the middle of... Like, nobody wants to see that right now. No, and people are going to go back and see Barbie a second time. Yep. Um. Yeah, I agree. I don't think Haunted Mansion is going to do that well. Uh, there's a little A24 horror film called Talk to Me. I That's think gonna do really gonna well, do, I think. I think it's gonna do good for its market. It's it's already got a lot of uh critical hype and it's one of the few movies that I think they're actually allowed to promote at Comic Con. Like I think it's gonna be it's gonna be one of those ones that have people writing, you know, think piece articles of like, is horror back? Like, yeah, it's fucking never gone away. Um, I think it's going to do not maybe like, you know, I I don't think it's going to do Barbie numbers, but I think it's going to make its money back plus. Yeah, I agree. Um, In fact, it could be a sleeper. It might take a couple weekends to sort of gain traction, but I could see if it's if it's really scary or different. um, It could bring once that word of mouth gets out. Yeah. And and like I said, I, I think. From what I've heard, it seems like there's already a lot of good early buzz about it. So if it's if it's a good movie, I think it'll do well. Right, and horror fans are kind of dedicated. They they they're gonna support. They horror. turn out. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, August fourth, The Meg Two. Oh, I didn't even realize that was coming out this year. I thought that was next year. Uh, I. I mean, it was the budget fucking three hundred million dollars. I think that's kind of the deciding factor for me. No, I don't think so. Um, I don't. The Meg was kind of a surprise hit because uh, it was supposed to just be a you know a B movie. Yeah. Um. So I'm looking. That's that's the original. So the original Meg was budgeted at a hundred and thirty million, um, which is kind of a lot for that type of movie but Meg 2 The Trench is I don't know if we have a budget for it yet but what does it say hmm. yeah I don't think they, they've posted a uh, a budget for it yet um, so I, probably I think... still some final touches they have to do and of course marketing costs and stuff but they have to factor in I I don't see that one performing especially well. Um, so no. it, to me, it just like if they could do it kind of leaner and meaner than the first one, it might make some money. But I I just don't see it doing like super great. I don't think so either. Same weekend, we get the Seth Rogen Ninja Ninja Turtles movie. Oh fuck yeah fuck! I think that's gonna. I think that's going to be another hit. I think that might be like Spider-Verse level. Like uh we'll see. I I don't know. I I feel like that could go either way. Um there's still uh, man, a lot I of competition. Has, I though. think it has the the kid appeal. I I think the the co- like the concept behind it of making them like actually teenagers and making it maybe more of a comedy than like just a straight up 
nostalgic action thing. I I think it's going to do really well. I think, again, I think it's going to be a big hit with families and you've got the dads who are going to want to take their kids to see it. I I think it's going to be a hit. All right. I'm not, I'm less convinced, but uh, August 11th, we have Gran Turismo, uh, which is about the kid who learns how to race. Yeah, yeah. Who, who the like, uh, racing games? Uh, I don't know. I don't have an opinion. I, 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 I again. I, I don't know how much this one costs to make, but I, I, I don't know how much people really care. Yeah, I think they're banking on that Ford versus Ferrari kind of vibe. I think they're trying to hope for something like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I I feel like it's an old. It's kind of an old school type of adventure film. Like you know, we like a like a uh, well, it's, a, it's something like, that would have come out in like the eighties, like something like Karate Kid or something like that. I don't. It it almost feels like. Uh, Ford v Ferrari meets Last Starfighter, right? Because it's like this kid who learned how to do it through a video game. Uh, I, I think, again, that one's going to kind of come down to the budget. If they, you know, I'm sure these race scenes probably cost a lot to make. So I, I think if it if the budget comes in under $200 million, it will make its money back plus. I think if it's over that, uh, it'll flop. Uh, the same weekend, we also have the Voyage of the Lo- of the Demeter, which is I a Dracula adjacent story. I think this one will unfortunately flop, uh, yeah. which will bum me out because it looks fucking cool as shit. I haven't seen any marketing materials for it, but I've seen a, the trailer a few times, and I I love the concept of it. Uh, but I just I think unless it does something like incredibly fucked up, I I just don't think the old school like monsters are a draw so i i think it's gonna be one of those movies that in a year or two we're gonna be like ah that movie was so fucking cool i wish it did better here's one of my predictions for one of the biggest flops of the year blue beetle yeah it's gonna flop i just they're already trying really hard to push it and i don't see any energy for this movie no, DC has already tanked twice this year. Can they go for the hat trick? I think so. It's not a he- hero that has like mass appeal. There's no, you know, stars attached to it. I just, I, I think this is going to be the one where people are like, it's superhero fatigue again. Like, I, I think that's just going to be what what the sort of rallying cry behind that movie is. I I agree. I think it's going to flop based off of Shazam and flash. And this is, you know, this is a hero that doesn't have any sort of franchise credibility to it. Uh, I don't see it doing particularly well. Also a dog movie coming out that weekend. uh, Yeah. Will Ferrell and Sofia Vergara. I think uh, I think it looks fun. It looks funny. All the trailers I've seen have had people laughing in the audience. My fear of that movie is they've already given away all the funniest parts. Um, but I could see it doing. I could see it doing well. Like I, I think the concept of you know sort of a, a naughty 
uh, homeward bound idea, I, I think is fun. So I, I could see it doing doing pretty decent. I feel like something like that, even if people enjoyed the, the trailer, the average person's going to say, I'll wait for Netflix. That's that's a strong possibility. But if they do a, a day and date release, mm-hmm. like a, or, or maybe just a couple weeks after a theatrical release, have it for VOD, then I feel like it could make some money. But... It's a you know kind of a novelty comedy. I I will see. I don't see it. Um. The okay. The last movie I want to predict is a movie called White Bird, which I didn't know what was until earlier today when I was looking it up. Um. This has this is like the first prestige movie of the year. It's based on a book. It has Helen Mirren. And Gillian Anderson in it. Uh, I literally have not heard of it until this moment. So uh, I'm sure it will do fine and then get nominated for all the Oscars, even though nobody saw it. In August 25th. I don't know. Yeah, it's a period piece. I yeah, I don't I don't. I don't see it doing particularly well. Like, I literally have not heard of it till now. So, I, and yeah, this summer is so kind of stacked already that I just can't imagine it doing super great. Unlike the, you know, you know, the, the surprise hit of the summer, the one that nobody wants you to see that they're shutting AMC theaters ACs off uh, so that you'll walk out on. I'm talking about the truth-telling Jim Caviezel's <laughs> Sound of Freedom. Right. I mean, I did look up, I, I did look that up because there is this narrative that it's, um, that it's actually doing really well. And I guess it is. It, it, it's, people have called it QAnon adjacent. Yeah. Um, and then I mean, there's always going to be a market for faith-driven films. I call the, and whatever success they get, you know, it's sort of that Tyler Perry model of not too different from like the horror model of just spending less than you need to. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who's in it. You're just appealing to a certain demographic. You play the middle, the red states, and they're going to support their movie. There was also yeah. a movie that came out earlier in the year with Kelsey Grammer. I forgot what it was called. Um, about like the uh, the Jesus movement of the sixties and seventies that did kind of well for its market. But um, yeah, I mean, those movies are sort of a given. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, also, this one has the the uh, this weird attempt at viral marketing with like you know AMC doesn't want you to see it, and and I think that's kind of playing into you know that market that demographic. But yeah, it's obviously very stupid, and if you see it and like it, I think less of you. <laughs> I. I don't know enough about it to really care one way or the other. 
Um, and there was also sort of like a thriller that Lionsgate put out earlier this year that was like based on like a kind of faith based production something or other. But I forgot what it was called. Okay. So that is what we predict for the rest of the year. We'll see how any of those end up doing, how much egg we end up on our face. But let's mm, go ahead. Nothing I love more than egg. Yum, yum, eggs. <laughs> let's go ahead and talk about our streaming homework, which you assigned. That's uh, born on the 4th of July. This is uh, the Oliver Stone film from 1989, starring Tom Cruise. And it tells the story of Ron Kovic, uh, a Long Island kid who had a lot of ambition and a lot of patriotism. He comes from a long line of World War II and World War I uh, optimism and decides to enlist into the Vietnam War for, you know, the fear of communism spreading. And he doesn't seem as, as hopeful about the future in terms of college or whatever his other friends are doing. So he actually enlists, and uh, rather than, you know, a lot of those guys who were drafted... And while he's there, he gets put on the front lines of some pretty hairy situations where he is put in a lot of morally compromising tasks and ends up with a lifelong injury that leaves him paralyzed from the waist down. And when he is honorably discharged and brought back home, he kind of comes back to a different reality than he left. You know, now there's a lot more publicity about the war. There's a lot more kind of a back and forth about the uh, moral character of the war and um, whether we should be there or not. And he sees himself sort of in, as this symbol of portrait of America at that time. You know, this kind of fraught tension between the the veterans who served in the war and the the activists who are against it. And he feels like he's at an impasse on both sides and underappreciated. This is earlier Oliver Stone. He had had a few successes before this, obviously, with Platoon, which also covers the war. Of uh, the Vietnam War, um, Oliver Stone was a co-writer on uh, De Palma's remake of Scarface. I mean, he had had some short films and documentaries and such, but this was during that time when Oliver Stone was really set forth as this new important voice in American filmmaking, especially in terms of. Uh, anti-war and anti-imperialist rhetoric coming from the Hollywood system. You know, there had been anti-war movies before him, obviously, and even by the 70s, we were seeing movies like Coming Home and, and what have you, but it was really 
him who, and really this movie, that put that out there in a big way. Um, and, you know, this along with his, his president's movies, Wall Street, and what have you, uh, being very forthright about his political con- convictions. Mm-hmm. But yeah, had you seen this movie before or? No, no, I never had. It's it's one of those ones that, you know, I had kind of always heard of um, uh, because especially when we're talking Oliver Stone, you know, this is one of his, you know, bigger movies within his canon. It's one of those ones that I, you know, I always kind of knew the image of Tom Cruise in a wheelchair. Um, but I, you know, I'd never growing up, it, you know, it just kind of missed me. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, just now with my current political ideology and, you know, where the country is at currently, I felt like, uh, you know, I personally, uh, it has been harder and harder to motivate myself to celebrate the 4th of July. Um, it went from a, a holiday as a kid, you know, that was very exciting because it's like you see friends and you barbecue and it's, you know, sort of peak summer uh, and there's fireworks and it's just sort of a fun, chill day. But, you know, as... I get older, uh, more and more. It's like, well, what the fuck are we celebrating? Because I kind of knew what it was about, but I didn't know necessarily how hard it goes, you know? Right. And, I mean, I, I, I think that Oliver Stone, all throughout his career, one could levy the criticism that he never shies away from the melodramatic. No, yeah, sure. And of... All the films I've seen from him, this is probably the most melodramatic. Sure, but it but it also the story, just the nature of the story, I think plays into that, right? Like it's you know yeah. it's about Vietnam, it's about a, a Vietnam vet, it, it, you know, it's about this sort of radical shift in political ideology. So like. The melodrama, I think, is just kind of built into the narrative. So I, I think in that sense, you're not wrong. But I think that in this case is a, is a strength, right? Like it's, it's Oliver Stone playing into his indications in a way that feels very natural and maybe less forced than I think some of his other movies do. And you're doing it with Tom Cruise during one of the heights of his career. Right. I mean, he was nominated for this movie, and this was, I think, the same year that Rain Man came out. So this is Tom Cruise, really, as he was, like, growing up, you know, from being Risky Business and Top Gun. And in a, in a lot of ways, this movie is kind of like the anti-Top Gun. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's interesting because he's sort of transitioning from this like sort of heartthrob to oh, Tommy Cruise wants to be a real fucking actor here, like right, and and he's great in it, like you know he he's really good, 
it's very funny to see Tom Cruise as an actor and as a personality and the the trajectory his career has taken, um, you know, with doing Top Gun 2 and promoting it, you know, almost exclusively as this sort of military appreciation thing. Uh, You know, he he sort of became a one-man USO show. It's very funny to think of this movie in his canon uh, that is very anti-war and anti-military. Not not anti-vet, uh, you know, it, it's very empathetic. That's, you know, kind of the whole point is all the, the people that get chewed out of the military-industrial complex, especially at this time in American history. It's just kind of funny to that, you know, it's Tom Cruise playing this guy. Right. Well, I mean, I think it makes sense, you know, especially getting that actor at this point in his career because absolutely and what you were talking about sort of that you know there that sort of melodrama of sort of a a cleaver-esque americana that the movie yeah. sort of embraces early on in the movie it, yeah it, and it, then it starts it, as this like norman rockwell, rockwell sort of, kind wet of thing. dream right and then it's all about sort of the the loss of innocence of a nation. Yeah. Um, at one of our, one of the first, not the first, but one of the first modern wars that was uh, morally ambiguous at, at the very least. Well, yes. And I, I mean, you know, historically war is always morally ambiguous. It's fucking war. And, and you know, I think, uh, we talked about Oppenheimer. I, I, I think, you know, we might get a, a different side of the sort of greatest generation story uh, with that coming up. But this was the first war with major news coverage, you know, that, that actually showed fucking kids dying, American soldiers dying. Like you said, it's it's that loss of innocence where it's it's not just the hurrah USO show. We're fighting the greatest evil of all time. It's what are we fucking there for again? Why are we killing these people? Why are we sending all of these Americans to die? What's we're stopping communism, but we're fighting the Vietnamese. Like what is happening? And all of this raw footage of the actual horrors of war. Uh, So it's, you know, it's not that this was the first less noble American war. It's that this is the first time the American public is sort of seeing the reality of that. Right. And also sort of seeing that, you know, the manufacturing of consent. Yeah. Yeah. And creating a narrative to drum up support. Um, and then also what it does to the people who were involved and, and using using that sort of backdrop of American nostalgia, even through the 60s and 70s, but with, you know, these very realistic scenes of gritty dialogue. Yeah. Between the actors. Yeah, yeah. And and like, you know, I I think, you know, the the most haunting part of this movie and there's a lot of it that is um uh is 
the sequence where he's in the VA hospital, you know, and he's he's told he's never going to walk again, but his he, he hasn't changed yet, right? Like he hasn't learned anything yet. So he just thinks that through his you know, pure willpower alone, he's going to overcome the biological reality of having his spine severed and and he thinks that no, gosh darn it, I'm I'm going to walk out of this hospital just you see and just like this slow realization that he might lose his fucking legs, let alone never walk again, you know, these scenes of him with this sort of G Willikers attitude while he's emptying his catheter bag, like it's really upsetting, <laughs> uh, but intentionally so, you know, like it, it, it's, it's, I think really well done filmmaking it, it, this section in particular, like, you know, the, the, from his time in the war through sort of his return back to, uh, back to, you know, what should be normal life, I think is is kind of this alignment of the stars with Oliver Stone as a filmmaker. Like it's it's I think him sort of firing on all cylinders. Yeah, I would say that there are certain sequences of the movie that that resonate more than others. Um I th- I think the hospital is one of them and a key sequence. And I would also say the the stuff in Mexico. Yeah, is, with is, Willem Dafoe. It's particularly powerful. Um, I I like the sequence where he reconvenes with his his high school girlfriend, who uh, played by Kira Sedgwick, um, and she goes from you know this hopeful academic going off to college, and then he comes to visit her, and she's now a full on anti imperialist protester. Yeah, and and he sort of reconnects with her at a time before he is sort of ready to reckon with that. Mhm. Yeah, you can you can also feel a lot of beats here that Zemeckis lifted for Forrest Gump. I yeah, I was going to say Forrest Gump sort of feels like the anti born on the 4th of July. Like like it is sort of the flipped coin, right? Like, uh, um, you know, Forrest Gump is this, it's pulling its drama from different sources. Uh, all of the sort of American history aspects are just kind of the backdrop, uh, for his personal drama. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of parallels with, especially the Vietnam storyline, uh, Lieutenant Dan, uh, it feels like a reflection of this character of uh, Tom Cruise, um, of Ron Kovic. The Ginny storyline sort of parallels. Kira Sedgwick's, yeah. We'll just say that uh, uh, Forrest Gump is the the more optimistic version. Right, I mean... I. I think that there's there's aspects of Forrest Gump that I think are actually more subversive than people give that movie credit for. Sure. Um, and I and I think that the movie still works on a personal level. And I yeah yeah. And I, I think I, that the the movie sort of uses uh, Forrest's naivety to be able to stomach some of the harder stuff 
But and, well, and when you say it's subversive, like yes, we are seeing it through the the lens of Forrest Gump, and and so through that, I think. Yeah, I I don't think that Forrest Gump is necessarily like this, you know, uh, military propaganda thing. Uh, it, it just, the pill goes down a little easier than Born on the Fourth of July, which is like, look at this. This is like the most fucked up thing in the world. Right. Well, to me, Born on the Fourth of July and movies like it that came out around the same time, you could also throw in... Something like Full Metal Jacket, which I think was only a couple of years before it, was really America taking a look back for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could say that maybe started around the late 70s with movies like Coming Home and kind of Apocalypse Now, although that movie sort of becomes something else almost altogether. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 those are the beginnings. I think Born on the Fourth of July was like the the close hard look in the mirror for the first time of like let's address this. Well, and and it's also you know it's done as this sort of big budget you know kind of like trying to do it and and get the biggest audience possible for that. Yeah, and you know there's a ton of actors in here and a lot of great performances. Particularly the ones we've mentioned, Willem Dafoe and Kira Sedgwick. Uh, mm. Carolyn Cava as, her mo- as his mother and uh, his, his group of friends in the movie. His childhood friends who then grow up and take on different kind of paths of their lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the movie mostly still works. There is sometimes when the movie I think it tiptoes a little bit into melodrama a bit much for me. There's a, you know, there's a scene that's sort of unintentionally funny where him and his mother are like screaming about the use of his penis. I I I <laughs> loved that scene. I was like, this is such a fucking scene of a scene. Like like yes, you're right. It is absolutely like over like like off it's the rails melodramatic very actory <laughs> yeah but i also kind of loved that because you don't get that in movies these days like you don't get that kind of like this is a fucking like scene that you could read in theater class right uh so i, I there was this you know the theater nerd in me was like this is this would have been great to take to state Back right. in high school, uh, but it is very much uh, that kind of a scene. But I, I, I kind of loved it for that. Right. I just feel like that the content of that that sequence is dealt with bet- better elsewhere, particularly his dealings with the prostitutes and stuff. I felt like there was some actual like subtlety and humanity there that plays yeah. a little bit, a little. I think. It's it's not a drunken monologue. Yeah, it's 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 a little less uh, on the nose. On the nose, yeah, and a, a little less aware of an audience. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I I would say this movie is worth worth a look back at the very least for the performances. I don't know if it's going to work for everybody at this age, just because. 
the movie is so very much what it is and very yeah. un- unambiguous about it. I I don't know. I think in that way, it, it is both dated but aged well, right? Like, mm-hmm. it definitely scratched uh, the itch that I wanted it to scratch. Yeah, it left me feeling very satisfied. Uh, so, I, you know, will younger audiences appreciate it? Probably not. Because they, I don't know, you know, they they didn't really grow up with movies like this. And, you know, we're much further detached from Vietnam. Uh, You know, even our generation probably didn't understand it entirely. So I I can see that. But I think, I think as, you know, kind of this time capsule piece, I think this is uh, one of Oliver Stone's more straightforward movies. And to good effect, uh, I think it's solid for the performances. I think it's worth checking out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I I, I tend to like Stone a little bit more when he's working within genre. Um, You know, I I like Natural Born Killers. I like U-Turn. I like uh, even something like Wall Street, which is still very... I mean, all of those movies are still polemics of a type mm-hmm. but those movies are a little bit more sneering and satirical whereas yeah, this, this movie is very this is, is very trying to be as middle of the road as oliver stone can be it's you know it's trying to be a prestige picture yeah uh, you know john williams does the score sometimes the score is a little much it uh, honestly reminded me of Terminator 2. Like, there's, there's this, like... There's a refrain or something in there. Yeah, that's similar. Yeah. yeah. But but it, it feels uh, incomplete compared to Terminator 2. Like, It feels a little bit like bits and pieces of other scores. Yeah. Like, there it's, wasn't... It's, it, it's never... not quite as cohesive as his, his work with Spielberg, but it's... Totally. But it's still very much a John Williams score. Um, has you know big swelling melodramatic moments. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I would say it's it's worth taking a look at specifically for the performances. Sure. All right. Uh, the next time we do an episode together, we are going to be reviewing the film uh, for our streaming homework, Chungking Express from nineteen ninety four which is now streaming on HBO Max. It's also on the Criterion channel, I believe. Uh, Possibly Canopy, if you have access to that. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the movies we talked about in this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can find us on uh, Twitter and Instagram and other social media sites at mcguffinpod including Letterboxd. If you're not following us there, that would be a place to look to see what we're going to review later on. Um, We're also still building a profile on TikTok. Uh, Just started getting some video up on YouTube, so check us out there. Uh, And you can uh, read the other articles and uh, reviews by the rest of the MacGuffin stuff at mcguff.in 
You can read my reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews. Uh, that should take you to the review archives. You can follow me individually at BC Cassidy on Twitter and Instagram. I'm also on Threads now, um, if you're doing that. And if you have not already done so, please leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review at whatever podcast app you use. Uh, Spotify or player.fm, iTunes, what have you? Um, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, you can also follow me on Blue Sky Social, I guess, if you're on that. I don't care. Um, I, I think it's at Keith Foster Kid as well. Um, yeah, and if you want to see me perform, I perform uh, improv comedy at Mockingbird Improv. I am a part of the show's improv versus stand-up, and I also occasionally perform with this other show called Lyrics and Laughs. So come check those out, and uh, you can check out MockingbirdImprov.org uh, for more information. And that is the podcast. Penis! Penis! Big fucking erect penis, Mom! Bye.